I'm Ted Burnham. And I'm Susan Moran. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, June 10th, 2014. Coming up, biologist Paul Ehrlich and ecologist and author Michael Tobias will discuss their new book, Hope on Earth. It's a sweeping conversation about some of the most urgent issues of our time. with a look at some of the recent news in science. We all know the familiar face of the man in the moon. Really, it's an illusion, an example of pareidolia, created by the dark, flat maria, metaphorical oceans of basalt rock that cover the near side of the moon. On the far side, the terrain is quite different. It's all valleys and craters and highlands. And a team of astrophysicists at Pennsylvania State University has finally figured out why. Their research, published yesterday in Astrophysical Journal Letters, explains how the moon got its face. Long, long ago, before there even was a moon, the young Earth was all alone in space, but not entirely alone. One day, another young planet, about the size of Mars, slammed into the Earth. The massive impact vaporized a huge cloud of dust and debris, which slowly coalesced to form the moon. But the incredible energy of the collision lingered for a long, long time, keeping both Earth and Moon hot and molten at the surface. The Moon cooled faster, but with Earth so hot and so close, only the far side cooled enough to form a crust, condensing aluminum and calcium out of the vapor cloud to eventually form feldspar. The near side stayed hot for so long that its crust ended up poor in minerals, leaving it thin and brittle. Over the eons, asteroids peppered every part of the Moon, and the tough rocky far side just shrugged them off, But early impacts on the near side broke through that thin crust, releasing flows of lava that smoothed the terrain and formed the maria. Today, even the moon's interior has cooled, and there's no lava left. But the man in the moon tells us it happened just so. Speaking of interior, if you're thinking it's time to vacuum your floors, you might hold off until you hear this. New research shows that babies who were exposed to common household bacteria and dust in their first year of life are less likely to develop allergies, wheezing, and asthma. It turns out that crawling on a dirty floor could actually be good for a kid's health. Surprising, right? Previous research has shown that children who grow up on farms have lower allergy and asthma rates. That's largely because they're regularly exposed to microorganisms that live in farm soil. Other previous studies have found that kids who live in inner-city environments have increased asthma risk. That's because those children are exposed to high levels of cockroach and mouse allergens and pollutants. But this new study adds a surprising twist. Babies who encounter household bacteria and allergens, namely cats, cockroaches, dogs, dust mites, and mice, before their first birthday, seem less likely to develop allergies, wheezing, and asthma. Early exposure apparently gives the babies a protective effect by shaping their immune responses. Curiously, the effect is not seen if a child's first encounter with these allergens and bacteria occur after they turn one. The findings may help inform preventive strategies for allergies and wheezing, which are both precursors to asthma. The study was conducted by a team of scientists at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, University of California, San Francisco, and Johns Hopkins University. It was published last Friday in the journal 
of Allergy and Clinical Immunology. A few weeks ago, we brought you some remarks by NASA Administrator Charles Bolden from his recent visit to CU. At the time, he spoke enthusiastically about NASA's long-term plans for human space exploration. If you thought the 1969 moon landing, the, the space shuttle, the ISS, and other things uh, we've done since 1962 were awesome, I'm here to tell you that, as, as I would say back in South Carolina, you ain't seen nothing yet. It's a plan that reflects a steady, stepping-stone approach to meet President Obama's challenge of advancing deep space technologies through our asteroid redirect mission and sending humans to Mars in the 2030s. Redirecting an asteroid, sending humans to Mars, it sounds ambitious. But maybe that steady stepping stone approach that Bolden outlined is a little too slow and steady, at least according to a report released last week by the National Research Council. The report concluded that NASA's budget, which for decades has been less than 1% of the federal total, is too small for the goals that the agency has set. It concluded that the launch schedule for developing long-range space vehicles is too spread out, and that could mean astronauts won't get enough practice and safety issues won't be detected. It concluded that that asteroid redirect mission, which would bring an asteroid into near-Earth orbit where it could be easily studied, might be a distraction from the main goal of reaching Mars. And it concluded that the U.S. shouldn't try to go to Mars alone. Instead, NASA should collaborate with other nations, especially China. On the other hand, the report agreed that Mars is and should be the ultimate goal of human space exploration. So at least NASA has its sights set on the right target. Administrator Bolden hasn't responded to the report directly, but NASA did release a statement saying the agency will consider all of the recommendations. On the calendar this week for science, Café Scientifique meets tonight in Boulder, and the presenter will be computer scientist Nicholas Correll of CU Boulder. While Café Sci usually features informal Q&As about science, tonight's event promises something a little different, a blend of science and fiction. Inspired by imaginary liquid robots like the evil T-1000 in Terminator 2, and by real-life advances in smart materials, Dr. Carell's interactive presentation will ask the audience to imagine how a liquid that thinks might actually work. As always, Café Sci is free and open to the public. The group meets at the Outlook Hotel on the 28th Street Frontage Road in Boulder. Dr. Carell's talk begins at 6 p.m. You're listening to How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. I'm Susan Moran. Few people have thought as critically and deeply about the state of the Earth and our role on it than Paul Ehrlich. Over the course of several decades, the Stanford University biologist and ecologist has written many books, including the influential and controversial book, The Population Bomb in 1968. In that book, he predicted that hundreds of millions of people would starve to death in the 1970s due to overpopulation and limited resources. He's just come out with a new book, which he co-wrote with Michael Charles Tobias, an ecologist, filmmaker, prolific book author himself, and nonviolence activist. The book is called Hope on Earth, A Conversation. And indeed, it is a conversation between Ehrlich and Tobias. In fact, their conversation, many of them, over time took place here in the research outpost just outside of Crested Butte. Both men are joining us now by phone from California to discuss the book and the most pressing environmental issues of the day. Dr. Zerlich and Tobias, welcome to the show. Nice to be here. 
Indeed. Thank you, Susan. Great to have you. It's an honor. So the book is so sweeping. I want to take us to the specifics, particularly since we're in Colorado now, to where you apparently had and probably spent much time, but had these conversations at what was then a booming mining town in the late 1800s, um, Gothic, and it's the Rocky Mountain Biological Lab just outside of Crested Butte, beautiful place. Um, why, why there? Maybe start with uh, Paul. Well, it's easy. That's where I spend <laughs> my summers doing research, and Michael was nice enough to come out and visit. It's a wonderful place. It's a wonderful lab, um, and uh, actually uh, the one of the richest places in Colorado in terms of rainfall and the flora and fauna. There's an annual... Uh, wildflower uh, viewing time, and uh, it's got the richest butterfly fauna in the United States. Uh, and we have a little cabin there at 9,600 feet. So uh, we've been coming out to Colorado every summer but two since 1960. Sweet. And, and we'll yeah. come back to the uh, flowers and butterflies a bit later. But, Michael, sounds like you didn't have to be cajoled too much. You have some history with Colorado yourself. Indeed. I actually spent a few years at uh, the University of Colorado in Boulder there and uh, have climbed many of the 14,000-foot peaks across the state, still have family in Denver. So uh, it, I, I knew the area, but uh, mostly from the Aspen side. But it, it didn't take much to, to be teased to come out there, certainly during one of the most magnificent wildflower displays probably one is likely to see in one's lifetime, certainly in North America. Oh, it's great. And then I want to jump right to the title, which is Hope on Earth, A Conversation. And in some ways, it seems quite a paradox. I mean, there's a lot of doom and gloom that you outline in the book and some hope. But, Paul, first with you, does this suggest that you've come full circle from the dire predictions from the population bomb to, you know, oh, however, you, however you define hope now? Where, where, wait, wait. where are you now and where are we now in relation to 40 years ago when you wrote that? I'm, I'm much more depressed now because we have done very little to solve the problems. We've lost roughly 250 million people to starvation since the book was written. And, of course, the prospects are even worse with climate disruption, which, by the way, has been demonstrated as beautifully at the Rocky Mountain Biological Lab by John Hart's experiments uh, and than anywhere else. On the other hand, Michael and I both agree that uh, there's hope in the sense that a society recognizes what's happening happening and uh, decides to change its course, uh, we still probably could change our course and avoid uh, a collapse of civilization. So uh, there's hope, but uh, the uh, we're not getting more hopeful as you listen to the news each night. Let's put it that way. So we're kind of at the 11th hour with some hope left. That, that's a good summary. Um, and Michael, what about you? Is this kind of paradoxical? Well, it's a question mark. I, I think yeah. the book might have been equally well served by, by enshrining a question mark with respect to the title. There's, there's no doubt that we have seen uh, unprecedented loss in what is commonly known now by the scientific community and, the, and, and communities at large as the sixth extinction spasm in the annals of biology on Earth. We are, I mean, we've seen nearly 900 extinctions from the time of the Renaissance to our present day, but that does not account for what we don't know. And what we don't know is exacerbated by the fact that the data pouring in by the minute from around the world suggests that the prolific nature of life in all of her 
different uh, forms on Earth, whether it's amphibians or freshwater fish or mammals or invertebrates, et cetera, um, is, is absolutely astounding. The numbers are off the charts, and that means that the percentages that we're seeing those species that have been identified, the numbers that we're losing every day are just extraordinary. And, and I think Paul said it perfectly just now when he recognized and we discussed in the book that a community, a democracy, a global commons that is suddenly waking up to the disasters that we've inflicted solely in this, this Anthropocene era we're now in also have the opportunity as as a multiplicity of communities to reverse the tide. We are at the 11th hour. We've got climate talks coming up, COP21 in Paris at, in the fall right. of 2015. And that's another instance in which if we don't get it right at that point, we're really going to cross the threshold of what's possible for, for redeeming ourselves as so-called homo sapiens or intelligent creatures, if you will. Yeah, so it's a big it's a big challenge. And looking at some of the some of the data, some of the evidence, um, Michael, I know this is really close. Well, to both of your research, but particularly you with biodiversity loss. I mean, you say and I know uh, Elizabeth Colbert, the New Yorker writer, mm-hmm. recently wrote The Sixth Extinction, sort of a, maybe the most recent popular book on it, massive extinction. What are some of the worst case scenarios because there's always this background natural extinction rate and and sort of new discovery rate but describe in it sort of in your mind and from your research how we're really at a different place now well we're it's it's been a common uh occurrence for a natural background rate of extinction that that is measured per million years uh it is now believed that our species has accelerated that by at least 10,000 times. You see it particularly with freshwater vertebrates. You see it with amphibians where we see a third or more of the approximately 6,300 known species of amphibians absolutely at risk of extinction. And a lot um, of that, like the, with the frogs in Panama and here, for that matter, a lot mm-hmm. of it is the fungus, some of which has been attributed to climate change, some not necessarily. But yeah, Yes, yeah. that's true. But, it, I mean, the, the, the background rate has been amplified 25,000 times. Some have suggested as high as 45,000 times in terms of the extinction rate for amphibians. That data comes from... Uh, the National Academy of the Sciences, and it, it, it's it's pretty recent. Wake and uh, Vredenberg in 2008 came out with a pretty pretty intense uh, look at the sixth mass extinction as viewed from the world of amphibians. Uh, Malcolm McCollum has also done that in terms of whether it's a decline or an extinction in the Journal of Herpetology in 2007. There's a lot of really strong peer-reviewed data suggesting that it's not just fungus, it's not just the, the, the climate change context. It's destruction of habitat, it's bioinvasives, it's uh, poaching, it's illegal trade in these species, it's human consumption at all levels that is just massively mowing down habitat that is the only habitat for these amphibians. We're seeing the same situation with birds. We're seeing it with fish. We're seeing it with mammals. We're particularly seeing it with fellow primates, over 50% of whom are, are, are looking at extinction in this century. And so to conclude in that, you've got pretty much a mass consensus now 
that between 30 to 50, possibly 40 to 60 percent of life on Earth could very easily go extinct at current business as usual paradigms by the end of this century, if not sooner. Shocking and numbers. That, so I, I just want to say I'm speaking to Paul the, Ehrlich and Michael Tobias, co-authors of the new book, Hope on Earth, A Conversation. So, Paul, yeah, your, your thoughts on that? Are you uh, saying it's as dire? Presented a, uh, a very accurate picture of what's going on with species extinctions, but much worse and much more serious for humanity at the moment is population extinctions because we depend on many of those species uh, for things we cannot do without. For example, we depend upon them uh, for pest control on our crops, for pollination of crops, for keeping the atmosphere in decent shape and so on. And we are losing populations around the world at a rate that is orders of magnitude greater than the species loss. So, for example, uh, you could kill off every bee in North America, every honeybee in North America, and you would not have lost the species but you are, as we are already seeing, in deep trouble for pollination. So on top of what Michael just accurately described uh, of species loss, we have an even bigger problem of population loss because, of course, before a species disappears, uh, ordinarily its populations have to disappear first, and that's what we're seeing at an even higher rate. That is maybe 100 or 200 times as high a rate, maybe 1,000 times as high a rate as we're losing the species. So. We're losing uh, the, the parts of our life support system that we are utterly dependent upon. And unhappily, most people don't realize it. Most people have never heard of ecosystem services, which there's a huge literature on of how we depend on the natural populations and species of other organisms. So just and to de de decode, that, decode that a bit further. So the ecosystem services are the services that ecosystem species, et cetera, can provide us. That do provide to us. They yeah. control the quality of the atmosphere. They make sure we get fresh water. They control the pests of our crops. They pollinate our crops. They kill off things that can bring disease to us. Uh, the list is very long, very highly studied, and includes uh, what are sometimes called aesthetic services. That is, uh, when you go to Colorado and walk through fields of, uh, of beautiful flowers, uh, there's, again, showing that does a lot for your mind and your, and your comfort. And that's a service we get, again, from natural ecosystems. So we're utterly dependent on our other living companions in the universe, the only ones we know about, the only life we know, and uh, we're wiping it out, and we've known this now for decades. When Anne and I first wrote Extinction, it was 40 years ago, I believe, close to, uh, and the pro problem was crystal clear then, and yet we've essentially done nothing at all about it. We have groups working hard in various places to save this species or that species, but the general rate of destruction is as Michael described. It varies from group to group, uh, but very detailed studies have been done paleontologically, for example, of what happened to mammals over time at the normal extinction rates, at the so-called background, compared with today, uh, and you're going to get orders of magnitude difference. We are in the middle of the great sixth extinction episode, and if we let it go too far, uh, there's a mammal that sometimes talks on te television and radio that may go along with it. <laughs> Yeah, I shouldn't laugh. So you both talk in the book about how, in a sense, we've come a long way, but haven't really. And Michael, you particularly talk about the maybe too much emphasis on singular species with the Endangered Species Act, 
which has done quite a bit. I think many would, would safely argue in the International Union of Conservation of Nature, the, the Red List. But, but sort of flush out why is that such a problem? Is it that it's addressing too much just the individual, like the tree but not the forest? Well, no, I, you, you, can't, you can't separate them. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the areas of, of concern and, and I think real fascination that engaged Paul and I in our book and in ongoing conversations is this question of the one versus the many, which has been an issue both philosophically and metaphysically and scientifically since long before Aristotle. And so I would also suggest that the, the crisis we're looking at ecologically is equally a moral crisis and we require a moral compass to to re-enchant if you will our childhood imaginations and dreams those dreams that that we all share as a species genetically and so i would look at both individuals at domestic and wildlife equally we have aggregates of pain for example in factory farming around the world just as we have moral questions that haunt us today with respect to triage and how much money in terms of hundreds of millions, if not billions, we as a democracy and a very, um, you know, a very wealthy democracy, what kind of burdens morally should we embrace with respect to a country like the South Sudan, where we've just heard this week very troubling data with respect to famines that are erupting like wildfires there, and other crises that are erupting worldwide. What are our responsibilities as, as ecological citizens, both of a country, of a state, of a locale, of a region, of a district, and of a planet that we all share to one another? And where do we walk away? Where do we turn our backs on a certain population or a certain species. Huge question. And um, since we just have a minute or so left, Paul, I want to jump right in. Since you wrote The Population Bomb, here we are many years later, you're saying many, many more have, have died of starvation. I just want to cut to the chase and ask, so do you, do you advocate population control right now and in the U.S. and elsewhere? What's it going to take? Paul Ehrlich? Sounds to me like we lost Paul. On the oh, phone. that's too bad. Well... Michael, since you I, both I discussed this it, in the book. I can address it. Well, the word control, nobody likes. It certainly doesn't, uh, it doesn't rhyme with democracy. It doesn't rhyme with poetry. <laughs> it, it, it's an authoritarian approach that strikes of coerciveness, and it, it has never worked. What we really need to acknowledge in the demographic arena is what the United Nations Population Fund has long been suggesting, and all the family health practitioners around the world have been acknowledging that the only way to, to shrink, if you will, the human population, which is accelerating at something like 82 million uh, people per year, you do the math, and that's about 225,000 people every day, four and a half people every second, something to that effect. What we need to do is provide contraceptive access worldwide, universal health care. We've got to give women and girls empowerment so they can choose whether to use contraception, how much, what type of contraception, to engage in dialogues with their partners so that everyone is part of the solution. But we have to empower women because ultimately, I, I, this is my opinion, I really believe that based on the data, based on common sense, when people are educated, when they have food, when they have dignity, and they have a job, they are You know what, I'm sorry, I, sorry, we're just cutting off. 
we'll, we'll definitely revisit this topic, but I've got to, I've got to cut you off because we're just at the end of the show. But I got thank it. you so much. That was Dr. Paul Ehrlich and Michael Tobias, co-authors of the new book, Hope on Earth, A Conversation. Thank you so much. You bet. Thank you, Susan. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Joel Parker. This week's show was produced and engineered by Ted Burnham. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Charcoal Gypsies. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Ted Burnham. And I'm Susan Moran.